Hello friends, how's it going? My name's Matt Bai, listen to Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast, the show where I try and cover the most interesting stories in surfing, skateboarding and snowboarding. Thanks for tuning into this episode, I hope you enjoy it. I'm back in the shed, I've not been in the shed for a while and um, it's nice to be back and it's nice to be doing more of these episodes after a little bit of a break. Alright, I've got to say, sometimes this gig really is great. And this week's episode is one of those occasions. I mean, it's always great. But when I came up with this idea five years ago, not in my wildest dreams, really, did I think I'd have Sean Thompson on the blower for an episode. And what an absolute privilege this one was. So let's get it out of the way first, the CV. It's no exaggeration to say that Sean Thompson, I mean, he's one of the most influential surfers of all time, period, as the Yanks like to say. He's definitely in the top 10 ever dominated the competitive scene, helped to redefine tube riding, killed pipe, generally just one of the biggest legends in the surfing world. And that's before we go into the, the rest of it, such as making busting down the door, his pioneering work as an activist and environmentalist, his work with Patagonia and Instinct. The list really does go on and on. I've not mentioned the books. I've not mentioned half of it. Luckily, we do go into it in this episode. So we're dealing with a cast iron legend, and over the years, I've thought every now and again about asking Sean to come on the show because obviously he's got an incredible story. Um, but I decided against it because, as regular listeners will know, these interviews with legends can go either way. For every Jamie Thomas or Lane Beachley, for example, there's an underwhelming Mikey February scenario. No disrespect to Mikey, it was perfectly fine that one. But the danger when you try and interview the legends is that they, you know, they don't know what it is. So they're just a bit like, oh, okay, I've got another interview to do. I'll just trot out all the same lines that I normally do or they go into full sales mode. I've talked about this a lot over the months and it's why I don't even really bother approaching people like Kelly Slater or Tony Hawk, for example, even though people are constantly asking me to interview them. Until they know what it is, there's just little point really. So anyway, I was watching the recent Pipeline comp, Pipe Masters, whatever it's called these days, and Sean Thompson popped up on the WSL coverage in an interview with friend of the podcast, Chris Cote. Within five minutes, he'd quoted W.B. Yeats and used it as an analogy to describe the life and death experience of surfing cranking pipeline. And I thought to myself, well, I've definitely got to try and get this guy on the show. What an absolute legend. I think I actually texted Owen at the time and was like, are you watching this? And he's like, yeah, legend. So a few weeks later, I just emailed Sean using the address on his website and got a reply within five minutes saying he was up for it and let's go. And even from that email interaction, I got a bit of a measure of the man and um, his generosity and, you know, his lust for life, his enthusiasm. And I was, I kind of thought we might be able to have a good conversation and happily I was right. This one is really great. Uh, we talked about Sean's career, obviously. We talked about the surface code, the benefits of which he extols with a missionary's zeal. But we also spoke about the big stuff, life, death, surfing as metaphor, and how he found the strength to recover from the unfathomable loss his family suffered with the death of his beloved son, Matthew. Moving stuff this. Um, so be ready for that. All this, and he came out with a great anecdote about Shane Warne and Matthew Hayden. Yet yeah, a true privilege, like I say, I'll leave it there for now. And I'll be back with more musings in Housekeeping Corner at the end. But in the meantime, here's me and the great Sean Thompson. The light shines ahead. Enjoy. 
So I think I mentioned in the email, um, what actually prompted me to give you a shout was when you were on the pipeline coverage chatting to Chris Cote and you dropped the WB Yates bomb um, halfway through <laughs> that conversation. I think it's like Irish Airman foretells his death, whatever it's called that poem, isn't it? And I was like, wow, I've got a game on the show. Because obviously, you know, it, it, it's not that common to hear people quoting Irish poetry during a, a, a WSL webcast. <laughs> so what I mean is, and, and obviously you're also, you know, you you write poetry, right? As well. Yes. So, um, so I love Yeats um, and I love words and, and I've spent my, the last 20 years, uh, which has been the third wave of my, uh, of my life devoted to storytelling. Um, so as a young boy, I was fascinated with reading, certainly reading about uh, the romantic stories of English wreckers and right. great sailing ships and, uh, uh, my mother, my mother wanted to call me Ulysses. Wow, <laughs> she That's... decided on Sean. So, you know, Homer and Odysseus, and yeah, sure. And the great writers have, have been been a part of my experience. And my upbringing at school was um, was sort of a post colonial experience. I think my school thought it was the South African version of Eton or Harrow. So we studied all the all the great English uh, classics, writers and poets. So words over the last um, two decades of my life, I, I've realized that there's, there's incredible power in words and the words that have, have the most power are our own words. Certainly words of others can inspire us just like the words of, of, of Yeats inspired me and sort of, I think, succinctly described the existential surfing experience that moment between life and death when it all hangs in the balance which makes the experience even more richer uh, that's why i quoted it because i think a pipeline is 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 the essential existential surfing experience 18 people have died out there uh, the most dangerous thrilling uh, technical wave uh, on the planet so i just thought his words that were written so long ago in uh, in the early 1900s uh, during the Second World War, just after the Second World War, during during the First World War, um, I think really described that experience. I balanced all, brought all to mind. The years to come seemed waste of breath, waste of breath, and balance with this life, this death. And I've ridden that fine line there at Pipeline and won the Pipeline Masters. I, I was the youngest guy at the time to win it uh, with a, a new technique and a new style and a new approach. But really, you just balanced on that that cusp, and it just makes that experience seem so heightened. Well, it was and... so it was so fitting as a as a thing as a as a point of reference because I actually went back and rewatched the, rewatched a bit of it earlier just to refresh my memory. And you know, you were you were obviously relating that occasion this year's Pipe Masters to your own experience. But you really, uh, the the words you used were. Um, I wrote them down. You, you used courage and desire as the two defining characteristics of what it takes to 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 surf well out there. Um, so I just thought it was really it, it was a great it was a great way of talking about that. You know, using that quote and and kind of helping to 
demystify it for people like me who you know avid surf fans surf myself but probably let's be honest never never really going to get stuck in at pipeline yeah when you paddle out at pipeline i mean let's put it this way when you watch pipeline and you watch the best guys in the world surf at pipeline there's certainly a feeling of effortlessness they make it look really easy but when you paddle out yourself you see how incredibly challenging and difficult it is um so certain people make it look effortless jamie o'brien kelly slater gabriel medina john john florence i mean he grew up there so he has that incredible confidence um but then you'll you know you'll have an amazing surfer i mean you'll have like the number one guy in the world philippe toledo currently who struggles with that commitment, who struggles with that courage and, you know, can go a whole heat and have one three-point ride and struggles with that elemental desire. Um, and what's fascinating about it is, I guarantee you, I could spend an hour with Philippe. Uh, and I, I work now with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people a year just to to help them find their power within the context of purpose. I, I could help change his trajectory uh, through the power of words and not my words, but his words. I just use a simple tool that really, I think, amplifies the power of words and helps us clarify our focus and, and find this uh, elemental power that, that sort of uh, is there within all of us. So, so what I do now, I mean, what I do now with surfing as the core and the basis is so different. It's so exciting and it's so, um, it's so changing. I, I work with, I work with these amazing companies. So I work with some of the biggest, fastest growing companies in the world and I work with their teams and I use this code that I developed through surfing that started from something called the surfers code, which was 12 lines that I'd written to inspire a group of young people that were coming down to Rincon to highlight awareness about an environmental problem. And I wrote 12 lines in about 20 minutes, every line beginning with I will, I will always paddle back out, I will take the drop with commitment, I'll never turn my back on the ocean, just simple metaphors um to inspire these kids and the kids got stoked um and then it evolved into a book it involved a couple of books and um and then it involved into speaking at, at at large engagements and then it involved into helping companies and then it involved into helping athletes and ptsd survivors and people in jails and all, all sorts of different people getting getting them to just hear my perspective. So I'll tell some stories. I've become a storyteller. I'll, I'll tell three or four stories about resilience and courage and connectivity and and, and sometimes um, innovation. And then everyone writes the code, their own code, 12 lines, every line beginning with I will. And everyone writes it in 15 minutes. So in 15 minutes, uh, a time of introspection and con concentration, you can come up with magic. Everyone comes up with magical words. And these are not, <clears throat> these are not my words. 
But what these words do, they inspire the writer, firstly, and they give the writer some clarity and focus of purpose. Um, they seem to activate <clears throat> the power of purpose. So purpose is, is our essential power. Purpose is our mojo. I mean, the academics uh, define purpose as an intention. So they say it's a, it's a long-term intention to achieve goals, or not to achieve goals, to achieve aims that are meaningful to self and the broader world. Um, now, that's how academics define it. So in my experience, I've discovered after reading millions of lines of code from all sorts of people, uh, I've discovered that our fundamental purpose in life can be described as two lines of code. So one is, I will be better. So people write beautiful words. I'll have faith. I'll pray. I'll be a better husband. I will do what I say I will do. I live a life of moral integrity. I will uplift others. So, so one half of our life purpose is I will be better. It sounds so simple and juvenile, this. And, and, and in fact, it is because there is a naivete associated with purpose. So one half of our life purpose is I will be better. And the other half of our life purpose is I will help others be better. So it's so bloody simple. Our life purpose is so simple and pure. Well, one of the things that struck me when I was preparing for this is, and you just kind of touched upon it then when you, when you said like almost like the simple act of, of making people write this down gives it, gives them the, the almost like, like, like the permission to find their purpose. Do you think that's what it is? Do you think it's, do you think it is that, because it's so simple, isn't it, this that you're talking about? And and I, a, a bit later, I want to get into the whole idea of surfing as a metaphor, which is something you've also touched upon, because um, I'm really interested at what point that w was something that was a key part of your relationship with surfing. But because the older I get, the more I kind of think that I'm 45 now, and I, I kind of think almost the point of life is just some kind of forward movement, some kind of decision making like just do like any kind of shift forward is is the, is something that will give you momentum and can change your situation and can 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 make you see life differently and i just it made me think of that when i was looking at the code and and the way because i've watched some of your lectures online as well and seen the way that you explain it and it does seem like it's almost a simple act of using your story to give people permission to think about it is what gives it its power is that something that you would you would recognize? Yeah, I think permission permission's an interesting word. Um, I think I think what I try to tell people, um, or what I do tell people, is I'm not giving you a prescription. I'm giving you a perspective, and I'm giving you a tool. Um, and I suppose giving the tool is a way to give people permission to look inside themselves in a very thoughtful, soft way um, and create something that is very committed, uh, very positive, 
very forceful because every line begins with, with the words, I will. And one of the things we found, and uh, I read an academic study that actually cited my program, is that it's a public declaration. So when people write their code in these large groups that I, that I work with, I use this cool text. So it's a public statement. So your code is visible to your peers. So it creates this accountability. When you say, I will do what I say I will do, um, or I will be a mentor, and you've made that statement and that commitment in, in front of others, it gives it more gravitas. So I suppose in some way, it, it can align with um, permission. It also, it's a very vulnerable process too. When you are revealing essentially your, your core purpose, your committed, collectivized aim to make yourself better and to make the world better, there is a vulnerability associated with that. But with that vulnerability, I think comes deep emotional connectivity. And that's one of the things that we've been missing on this planet over the last two years is this emotional connectivity because through COVID, you know, we've become physically disconnected from our peers. We've become physically disconnected from, from family, from others. Um, but it's amazing how this process that, I discovered through surfing has helped people connect with each other and connect with their, their deeper, better side. It's just super cool to see, you know, I, I'm very stoked about how this process that just came from surfing, from helping kids and came from this little surface code card has helped millions of people. And it's so cool. I mean, I'm talking big, big companies. At the onset of COVID, I did two events for thousands of people for the hottest company in the world at that time, the company that was on the front page of every single paper. It was called Gilead Sciences. Now, they invented, they had the only treatment in the world for COVID at the onset of COVID. It was called Remdesivir. So their teams were under unbelievable pressure around the world. Now, their teams were not under financial pressure. None of these teams were going to be fired because they were doing, I mean, they were in the greatest, their product was in the greatest demand of any product on the planet, but still they were under tremendous pressure. And I would ask, I would ask the teams, I use this cool tech, I would ask the team, send me a word that describes how you're feeling. So if you've got like a, a thousand people on the virtual live stream, you'll get a thousand words bombing in at you and it'll form a word cloud. So what a word cloud is, it's a grouping of words. The more frequent words are larger. So if you have 10 people and everyone is sending you words, stress, anxiety, despair, depression, but five people are sending you sad, the sad will be bigger. So you can see at a glance 
the visual representation of the macro consciousness. It's super, it's super, sorry. So you can see at a glance, a visual representation of the macro consciousness of the group that's, that's online. So the four big words, or the four most frequent words, and this was indicative of all the large companies I dealt with until the last sort of three months, has been stress, anxiety, despair, depression, disconnection. It's like five words. Wow. I call it a sad mindset. A sad mindset. And, and this, is, this is how everyone was until about three months ago. I mean, certainly there was hope, optimism, positivity, but those were the four or five principal words, sad mindset. So, so what I love doing now, so now I've got a start point. That's where the consciousness is. So now I tell my perspective, I tell some cool stories. I show the code method. Everyone writes the code. And then at the end, I ask, okay, now you've written your code. Everyone spent 15 minutes together. Everyone can see everyone else's code. I go, okay, as I described to you, our life purpose can be identified by two lines. Firstly, I will be better. Send me one line about being better from your 12, just one. So these lines would come across the screen and everyone could see them. I will have faith. I will know that tomorrow will be better than today. I will watch the sun rise. I will uplift others. I will be a better spouse. I will pray. I mean, just beautiful words. So, so now you've helped them have a mind shift. You've helped them shift the perspective from stress, anxiety, despair, depression, disconnection to these amazing words of hope, optimism, gratitude, um, and then helping too. I'd ask them, okay, now send me a word about helping others be better. I will be a mentor. I will inspire and uplift my team. So you just create this amazing sensation, not sensation. You, you create this amazing feeling of hope. And it's awesome. And I say, I've got the best job in the world. Well, I, the other thing that struck me is we don't have many opportunities in life really unless we seek them out to actually be completely emotionally honest do we you know like everybody has their private self which is the you know presumably the real you roughly speaking let's say and then you've got your public self the image of yourself that you project to the world and often the gap between those two things can be quite stark and it's not often that you are asked as an individual to actually reveal that private self publicly you know therapy is an obvious scenario when you might do that but what you do is you're asking people to actually reveal their private self you're you're, you're asking them to say like come on what is this like who are you what what's the truth here who, who's the real you and that that's not that common i don't think in life that people are asked to do that because it's so human nature being like it is you you essentially do construct a uh, you know a public front don't you to to get through life so i think there's the power 
there's, there's obviously a lot of power in that because you've obviously you've unlocked a way of getting people to do that quite quickly and simply in a way that makes sense to them so it must be must be hugely gratifying to see it in action especially when as you mentioned earlier when you consider where it came from this this original surface code that you wrote the Rincon situation that you described you also described earlier i think you used the phrase um that you've had like three phases to your surfing life you know you've had your, your competitive career and then this like post competitive life and what, one question i did have was um obviously what you do now is you use metaphor a lot you use metaphor and storytelling particularly you use surfing as a metaphor um to to help you know with the code and it, and it seems to be on lots of different ways did you always have that idea of surfing as as the metaphor from when you were younger like when you were competing was that also the way that you looked at surfing or did that evolve as you got older you know i think it evolved certainly i um you know i had this incredible passion and deep love for surfing from the first moment i stood up when i was nine years old I mean, I'd been involved with body surfing and uh, the swimming from from younger. My earliest memories are of being on the beach with with my father and my mom. So the the surf was always part of my life. So I had this deep deep love, but it, it was very um, it was very I think simple. Um, I think it started to evolve. My, my relationship really, once I think I started to do well competitively and I started to travel to Hawaii. And I think you could just see the, the place that surfing had in the society there. You know, growing up in, in South Africa, it was very sporty. Surfing was sporty and I mean, I won my first major pro event. It was called the Gunston 500. It was one of the biggest events in the world when I was 17 years old. And it was one of the biggest sporting events um, in, in the country. I mean, there'd be <clears throat> 40,000 people on the beach to, to watch. So, so there was this sport element that I started to go to Hawaii. And I remember I came back from a trip to Hawaii and this must have been 70 or 71. And I got my first tube ride. And that changed everything for me. It just changed the way that I looked at surfing. And I think it perhaps changed the experience and it became from sport to metaphysical. Uh, and that's, that's, I think, what changed it for me. And then, you know, I've never really thought of it that way, but that perhaps was when I went down the path of exploring tube riding. And I think that had a fundamental impact on, on I think, how I looked at surfing forever, forever after that. And certainly, in some ways, it made me look beneath the surface because what I discovered in tube riding um, and that that sensation of time being expanded and being able to 
surf at such a high level in, in the state of what what the famous psychologist Miha Csikszentmihalyi has called being in a state of flow um, and the state of elevated consciousness and thinking that you can control time and space and then seeing seeing surfing and tube riding as, as a metaphor for consciousness and for spirituality and for enlightenment that all sort of happened when I was pretty young bloke when I was like 19 years old it all started to happen for me and also you know I'm now at my first year at, at university and uh, you know I had a mate who was a just loved literature and you know we'd run down and we'd we'd go to the university bookshop and buy all Herman Hesse's books and then we'd buy all Albert Camus books and then we'd uh, you know we were, and then we'd buy all Joseph Kafka's books and you know here I'm a 19 years old I can't even bloody understand them but you know you're getting this <laughs> you're getting the, the gist of of like looking at life differently I suppose and then I'm studying Peter Drucker and I'm studying I'm studying uh, Maynard Keynes and I'm studying Adam Smith you know and it's like it's suddenly my mind is blown and I've just gotten out of the army like 18 19 years old so it's it's funny when I when I look back and see how this early uh tube writing and education and reading all sort of took me down a uh, took me down a cool path <laughs> well yeah no, but that's what's really joyous to look at your life and career in surfing because you can see how it's just kept evolving like this you know obviously your competitive career yeah you know top 10 surfers ever like all, all but that's not the whole story is it like it, it it's it feels like and from the outside looking at your life and career that this hunger for more that you described that you first kind of recognized when you were a kid and this voracious you know need for knowledge to find more to to, to get more meaning out of life has kept evolving you know so like it and, and it, it's become as you as you've as you've gone past your, past your competitive surfing career it feels like you've got more meaning out of it which is obviously a, a, a very it, well i i used the word gratifying before but it, it must be very gratifying it must be because that that's the relationship that we all want with these pursuits isn't it because yeah the physical side of it and the experience of going for a surf or going skating or going snowboarding whatever it is like yeah that's there's that but there is more to this stuff like there is they are a way of looking at life and they are a way of of orientating yourself with the universe without getting too you know highfalutin about it <laughs> I, I i think i think that's true i think that's that's why they have such an such an appeal so like to i think that's why when it, when we started talking i said i was quite interested in talking about storytelling metaphor rather than going like hey tell me about when you you know did this in your career because like I, it, that's what seems to be why you've still got such enjoyment and joy and passion about surfing because it's been this lifelong evolution yeah, very, I mean, very much so. I, I you know, when I, um, when I do these, uh, these, these speaking engagements, um, and, and present my perspective and the, and the code, you know, and I, mm -hmm. I, I love to do it. I, I really, I really love to do it. And, and I meet such, such amazing 
people. I mean, last three days ago, I did an event in San Diego for for a, a company called Mission Cloud. Now, the founder is Simon Anderson. Not right. The, not, the not that one. <laughs> and, and it was amazing to do it for you know hundreds of their team members. And the, the very next that night, I flew to Las Vegas and I did one for a for um for an Indian entrepreneur, immigrant to this country. His his parents were farmers, farmers, um, and. He bootstrapped his company and he's got a couple of thousand employees now. And I go there and I just, I tell my, um, I tell my stories and it's so satisfying. He said to me, Hey, Sean, this is a complete aside, but he said, Hey, Sean, he said, my whole team, you know, they're cricket mad. He said, have you got a cricket story for us? I'm I'm not going to tell my team who you are, I'm not going to tell them any anything about you, but perhaps, you, you know, you have a cricket story to, to really get them engaged. So I said, you know, I do have a fun cricket story. I said, I was living in South Africa before I moved over to the United States, uh, and this was post, uh, post-apartheid, uh, South Africa's newly democratic mid-90s, and the Aussie cricket team comes to South Africa. So... I see Shane Warne, the hot guy. You know, we just lost Shane, uh, unfortunately, about a month ago. Um, and I go, he looks like a surfer. You know, he's got zinc on his nose all the time. And he, I think he's a Queenslander, blonde hair. He looks just like a, reminds me of like a, of like a, a, a sort of a, a more portly rabbit Bartholomew. So <laughs> I find up the hotel and I get through, put me through to Shane Warne's room. A guy picks up the phone. I go, hey, Shane, Shane Warne there. The guy says, no, Shane, he's out. I said, Warne, he's out, he says. I said, uh, he said, who's this? I said, it's, it's Sean Thompson here. I heard he's a surfer. Uh, can I uh, can I take him surfing? He said, Shane Warne doesn't know bloody his ass from a surfboard. Said, I'm, I'm a surfer. I said, well, who are you? He said, no, my name's Matthew Hayden. I go, cool, man, I'll take you surfing. Brilliant. So now I go, I go and take, I take Matthew Hayden. He's quite a big bloke, about my yeah. size. Take him surfing, then on my board. And yeah, we have a cool day. And, and then I think nothing of it. So then a few years ago, I'm in Sydney, staying at Manly. I'm doing an event for an Aussie company. Uh, and I pick up the local paper, Sydney Morning Herald. And I'm reading, and it says, Matthew Hayden retires. Interview. I'm going, ah, Matthew Hayden. And I start reading through the paper and the, the interviewer asked him a question. So what's the, what's one of the best things that happened to you during your pregnant <laughs> career? He goes, you know, we're in South Africa and I'm sitting in my hotel room and I get this phone call. And on the other end of the line is Sean Thompson, the surfing legend, and he's looking for Shane Warne to take him surfing. And I say, bloody hell, Shane Warne can't surf, but I can. <laughs> and it was one of the coolest experiences of my career. And like, what are the chances that on that day, I will be in Sydney, picking up the Sydney Morning Herald and reading this. So 
one of the things I, I, I talk to, to, to people about, and, and I love doing this, is connectivity. And my last, always my last slide is a story about connectivity. And if you are open, if you are humble, humble to learn, humble to learn, because learning takes humility. Unbelievable things happen in your life. And, you know, you, you say that there is sort of this evolution and in, in my in, in what I do. And there is. I have a hunger. I have a curiosity to learn. I mean, I went back to I went back to grad school five years ago to study a master of a master's in leadership science because <clears throat> I was fascinated by influence and inspiration, how I can how I can really improve my craft and how I can have a, a greater understanding of what I do. So I always have this desire, you know, to be to be better, to push it, to push it, to push it, to push it. And and I think it it really it really hit me. You know, when I lost my beautiful son, when he was 15 and a half, and, you know, you go through life and, and it, it sort of, like, it seems like, well, it just sort of changes incrementally. And then you have this massive blast of destruction that just crushes you down. Um, and then you have to, to fight back and you have to find the hope and you have to have to find that optimism and that you have to find the stoke again. And, um, you know, people ask me when I do these events, so Sean, what's your favorite line out of your 12, out of your surface code? Like, what's your favorite line? And I say, I'll always paddle back out. And, and you know why, why it's my favorite? You spoke about action. You spoke about moving forward. It's about hope, but it's also about action. It's about putting one hand over the other or one foot in front of the other that no matter what happens to you. And, you know, people think that, that like surface code is so simple and so juvenile. And it is, it, it is, it is. The surface code that I wrote is so juvenile and it's so naive, but it's pure, man. And when people write their codes, it's pure. And you can have all these snide surfers putting shit on whatever they want to and living in their little dark clouds. It's, it's your choice where you want to live and it's your choice how you want to be. You want to be kind. Or you want to be unkind. It's it's a fundamental, I think, delinea delineation of who you are as a as a person. Do you want to be kind, or do you want to be unkind? Do you want to tap out a mean keystroke, or do you want to tap out something positive? So so when I went back to university. At the ripe old age, I think I was the oldest person at Northeastern, perhaps older than the oldest lecturer. 
I came across some unbelievable research. Um, so firstly, I came across, it's, it's quite well-known research. It's called Emotional Contagion. And, and it's about how all of us through our emotions can influence others in teams. And it's really, a, the studies were out of Yale and Harvard. There were, there were organizational development studies. You know, like if you have people that, that have optimism and hope and positivity in a team, you, you can influence others through this emotion. But they weren't aware that this can happen virally. And it only can happen virally through keystrokes and ultimately words. And they found experimental evidence of massive, massive scale emotional contagion. This was a study of 700,000 people through social platforms, through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever your platform is. So all of us have this power to influence others positively or negatively kindly or unkindly so for me there's a simple delineation and it's at the core essence of how you are as a being and i think more people in the world need to look inside themselves and go who am i and it can be answered by a simple question am i kind or am i unkind that's it that's the only question you need to answer and every time you sit in front of your computer and you want to blast out a keystroke. Think about it. Are you kind or are you unkind? And I think perhaps if people consider that fundamental, simple, existential question, perhaps, perhaps we can set a better trend for connectivity and discourse in this world. Are you kind or are you unkind? Can I, can I ask you a question about Matthew and, and the, the experience that you had there, just just related to this? Is that okay? No. Because what happened to your family is obviously as, as bad as it gets. Did it, did it shake this worldview that you're describing? Did you have to, did you have to rediscover it? Did, did, did it take time? Did it, did it knock it? Did it did it change the way that you that you viewed the world, or did it did it help to enforce this position that you've just outlined? No, it destroyed me. I was destroyed for 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 some time. I, I couldn't. I was angry. I was couldn't understand why why it happened to me because I thought I was. You know, I remember this going. You know, like. God, why did you do this to me? I, I'm a, I thought I'm a, I'm a good person, but there's no, there's no why. There's just acceptance that 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 these things these things happen, and then there's the way out. And for me. Surfing gave me a way out. You, you know, surfing is like it's everything to me, man. It's it's a it's a refuge. It's a salvation. It's a source of hope. It's it's been the source of my career. It's been the uh, so I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you what happened. So I you know we lost our beautiful boy and my wife and I we were just bereft 
despair, anger, loss of enthusiasm, no stoke, extinguished out, the flame, the fire was gone. Um, and then a friend kept phoning me, hey, Sean, I want to take you surfing, I want to take you surfing. One of my mates, I used to sit next to him at school, really good surfer. Come on, Sean, come surfing, come surfing. And, 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 and I, I wouldn't, wouldn't go. And I can't remember how long it was after I lost Matthew, maybe a month, two months. <clears throat> sort of a blur, you know, that terrible, terrible time. So eventually... I go, okay, I'll, I'll go surfing. So he takes me to a beach up on the north coast, north of Durban, because we lost Matthew in Durban. I was actually in the United States. My wife had been with him. He was at one semester at my old school, Clifton, uh, and all the kids wore school ties. It's part of the uniform, like English style. And uh, he played this game called the choking game with his school tie. We'd heard it had been going around the school. It's just this most dreadful, dreadful game. Um, so my friend takes me surfing and it's, it's early in the morning and we drive to this beach. I, I'd never surfed before. And we walk down these long steps to this beach below. And South Africa's on the East Coast. Well, Durban's on the East Coast. So the sun rises up through the sea. So as we're walking down, it's beautiful surf. The surf's about three to four feet. Um, and the sun's rising, this beautiful African sun. It looks like it's, it looks sort of primeval, boiling up out of the ocean. And I paddle out. And the water's very warm. The water's about 75 degrees. Uh, it's like May, I think. And I'm paddling out, and as I'm paddling out through the waters, I, you know, I'm crying. I'm just bereft, and the the waves are hitting into me, and they're like washing my tears away. It, it, it's it was quite an amazing sensation. <clears throat> the surf is sort of almost like softly caressing me and washing my tears away. And I paddle out, and I can feel my son's with me. I can I can feel Matthew's with me. I catch my first wave. You know, it feels a bit better. I paddle back out again and I catch a few more rides. It's just my friend and I. And uh, then I paddle up to him. And I go, hey, gee, what's the name of this break? He goes, it's called Sunrise. How about that? And, you know, hearing that was just like, it was just like a way forward and, to know that you know surfing was there for me man when i needed it it was there it was there in the beginning and then it was really uh right then right there right there surfing surfing was there for me it was amazing did it permanently change your relationship with surfing that experience was it was it was that also part of this evolving understanding that we've been talking about as a theme of this conversation yeah, I don't know if it. I don't know if it changed. Changed it. It. It may perhaps even even strengthened it more. 
it you know the relationship it's certainly there's an evolution there i mean you know obviously I, i've had a career evolution you know from from my early days through professional surfing and then my business activities with um with instinct and then my my working for patagonia and then my brand solitude and then uh and then after i lost matthew going down this path of of uh engaging people and helping them find purpose and writing books and making busting down the door um but also with surfing how i like see it you know for so many years i wanted to be the best guy in the water on every session and then when i retired from the tour i still wanted to be the best guy on that day at that break uh, and then surfing gets harder as you get older you just want to be the best you can be and then you just want to be better it, it's it, it's sort of a soft the relationship becomes softer and it's not so uh, self-competitive it's not such a a like push for excellence now it's more of a you see if i just go out there and it's just way more of a chilling thing the guy paddles around me you know i'm i'm, I'm not that not that uh fast bad but like it was way more way less competitive for me now competitive i suppose with myself and competitive in the context with other surfers in the water it's it's, it's a different it's more of an evolved, softer relationship. Is that liberating or do you feel like you've lost something with that change? Given how I'm assuming this is a pretty big assumption on my part, but that that competitive urge that you describe, and I'm guessing this is probably like from when you were a kid up to like mid forties, fifties kind of period. It was such a, prevalent i mean presumably that's the fire that got you to where you got to with surfing you know that competitive drive that desire to be the best like as you described presumably that was like a fundamental part of your identity as a surfer so when that changed and you recognized that how did that feel was that a positive yeah. thing or a negative thing it's definitely it's definitely a change i mean until until i was 60 i'm going hey Give me a wild card at J-Bay. I'll take on anyone at 60. They're talking about Kelly Slater at 50. Man, at 60, I was ready to go. But uh, That's amazing. But now, uh, now it's, it's uh, I'm not even remotely in, not even remotely in that universe of, uh, of high performance surfing. But it's still, it's just, it's different. It's not better, it's not worse. It's just different. And I think I've come to to an acceptance of it. It's not like I go surfing and I get frustrated and pissed mm. off that I'm not surfing 
as good as I could or I can't paddle out as fast as I could. I just go, hey, that's cool, man. I can still go out there at a B, at a B grade break and, and get uh, 10 or 12 uh, fun waves and maybe do a couple of good cutties and a couple of fast bottom turns and maybe get a tube here and then, and, and that's that's enough for me now. I don't have to be the best guy in the water uh, anymore. It's still, the stoke is still there. I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, we've not even talked about the, the, the rest of your extracurricular activities, you know, busting down the door. You mentioned instinct, you mentioned you stint at Patagonia you know your environmental work your activism over the years you, you've been busy <laughs> you know there's it's it's not just been in the war is it it's like it's you've across all possible fronts you've you've been an entrepreneur you've 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 tried things you've pushed yourself um i did want to ask about busting down the door like why why did you feel the need to make that film yeah that's a that's a that's a cool that's a cool question. So, you know, after I lost Matthew, I suppose I realized that that time was was just slipping by, and. I wanted to do something that was inspiring and something that would perhaps take my mind of what had happened with Matthew, um, perhaps just do something that would inspire young people. And I just thought that that was such a beautiful period of of my life in connection with all these other other great surfers so so the, the way it came about was i did this film called in god's hands i was an actor in the movie it was it was it was severely panned but it was quite an interesting uh, quite an interesting movie um and I met this this young guy. I'd asked him to like take my clips out of the movie, and he had like a little video shop with his dad, and just a cool guy, Jeremy. Gosh, I met Jeremy, and and, and we got to chatting. And a number of years later, I said, "Hey, Jeremy, you know, I'd love to do a series of twelve documentaries on pivotal moments in surfing: shortboard revolution, busting down the door." Um, just moments that really changed the culture. Um, so after I lost, after I lost Matthew, he he left his job and he phoned me up. He said, "Hey, Sean, remember we had that chat about doing that series of documentaries? Why don't we just do one?" I went, "Okay, we're gonna we'll do busting down the door." I said, "I'm gonna phone up Rabbit Bartholomew right now." <laughs> and buy the rights to the name i said and we'll go to hawaii we'll film all the interviews i know all, where all the footage is and uh, we'll, we'll 
put it together and we drove a budget and I wrote a check. I remember I wrote a check for $150,000 to kick it off. Okay, so we're, 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 ultimately the budget was over a million. But uh, so we all flew over to Hawaii. So now I've lost Matthew in April. This is in, uh, this is in November, November, December of, of, of 2006. We, we fly over to Hawaii, we, we do like 30, 33 interviews. We put a, put a rough cut together, uh, interview MR and Rabbit and Ian, and interview all the guys. I put, we put a rough cut together uh, and then I go out and get all the funding, uh, get enough money to, to make the movie. Um, and then through, through 07, we, 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 we make the movie. And I remember telling all the guys, you know, so these are, these are big personalities, Ian Cairns, PT, Mark Richards, Rabbit, Mike Thompson. I said, you guys are going to have no say so in the cut. I said, but you can trust me. I said, whatever you say, it's going to be in there. But I will guarantee you this, that I will have the best waves of your life in your segment. I know where all the footage is and, and, I, and they all trusted me. And the first time all the guys saw the movie was at the Santa Barbara Film Festival. We, we brought them all out there. I think it was maybe one of the most popular movies ever. It was, it was the coolest feeling. The massive theater we opened in the Arlington, I think it holds 2,200 people. And we were just so nervous that anyone would turn up. And, and I remember all of us driving down to the theater. And as we drove out, it's massive theater, 2,200 people. It's, it's like a cavern. There were lines right around, all around the block of hundreds and hundreds of people. We, we were so stoked. And it was just such a, a beautiful experience to, to just show that moment in time, to show perhaps us guys being culturally insensitive and, uh, you know, copying it for that, even though there was no ill intent, but certainly there was cultural insensitivity. And, and just to show the power of, of, of the dreams that we had and our commitment and that beautiful title that, that really encapsulated Busting Down the Door that Rabbit had, had written. And then the great music that we had, I mean, we had Iggy Pop and David Bowie and Leonard Cohen. We, we just had amazing, amazing uh, soundtrack and, and, and just to see the positive reaction from the movie. So it was, it was a wonderful experience. And it, I think it really helped me through the tough process I was dealing with Matthew. And then it was dedicated. It was dedicated to Matthew and Matthew's words form the end of the movie. So it was such a wonderful tribute and it brought him to life again. And, 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 and he will always live through that movie now. You mentioned Ian Cairns, and I actually pulled a quote off your Instagram, um, which is kind of what I wanted to, to, to end 
our conversation, which has been absolutely brilliant, by the way, and I've really enjoyed it. So thank you so much. Um, so it's, you posted a picture of you and Ian and told the story about, I think it was when you met at Bell's maybe. Um, and anyway, he left a comment which said, that's the story of life, being tolerant of your differences, but celebrating the things you agree on. Um, which I thought was a really nice sentiment. Um, so that's something that you would agree with? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. I think that that uh, you know all these sort of thoughts and, and philosophies uh, you know percolate around in our heads, and um, you know I think back to those twelve lines that I wrote wrote so long ago, and and one of the lines uh, in it is. I will realize that all surfers are joined by one ocean. So there is that amazing purity and commonality and connectivity of experience that all, all surfers have. And we are all we are all bound together. Okay, maybe there's a lot we don't agree on, but we are all bound together by by that by something really special. We are. And you know, some people might put shit on it and, and, and kind of laugh at it and be snide about it or be cynical about it. But there is a, a purity there of experience that all of us at that one moment stood up on a board for the first time and you, wow, man, you got that rush of looking at the world differently. And your life was changed after that. And we have that connectivity from that spark of stoke that started. I still feel like that. I started surfing really late and I'm enthusiastic intermediate. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, like most surfers in the world, I'd say. Um, and occasionally I'll get a wave and I'm, I'm a bit like, wow, that actually just happened. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, wow, I actually just did that. You know, <laughs> it never gets old, does it? I mean, that's the thing. It doesn't, I, I'm, I think that just lasts as long as you do it really. Yeah. Yeah. Sean, thank you so much. That was really great, and I so appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, before we end, you've got you've got you've got a book coming out. So quickly tell us about that, and tell us where people can get your book. Let's give let's oh, yeah. do the plug. I have a new I have a new book coming out. It's coming out on uh, on June the seventh. It's called The Surfer and the Sage: A Guide to Survive and Ride Life's Waves. So I wrote it um, with a friend who's a poet philosopher, Pulitzer nominated, he's a great guy. Uh, his name's Noah Ben Shear. And we wrote the book during COVID just as a way to help people through the post-COVID world, through the post-pandemic world. Uh, it's got 18 chapters, 18 because in Hebrew, uh, the number 18 has a special spiritual significance. It means chai, it means life. So that was why it has 18 chapters. And it's about the duality of life, hope and optimism and or hope and despair. And it, it, it sort of has these two uh, conflicting emotions and elements in juxtaposition. So we're hoping people will like it. Uh, we just got our first review from this big Publishers Weekly. It's a big like. And, and they called it a charming book. So I'm, uh, I'm stoked. We've got a wonderful quote. I sent it to Carissa Moore and she said, um, 
you know, surfing's first Olympic gold medalist. Uh, if you surf, read this book. If you don't surf, read this book. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm hoping that, that you, you know, the, the, the listeners just check it out. It's, it's uh, just part of the, part of my, uh, evolution and, and i'm hoping that someone picks it up and goes well that's pretty cool yeah well i'll i'll, I'll obviously i do full show notes for each episode so I'll, I'll there'll be links um so people can find out about the code and lots of the things that we've spoken about um so yeah thank you so there you go that was me and sean and i hope you enjoyed it what a beautiful man eh? and what a fascinating conversation if you follow me on instagram I'm at We Look Sideways, um, Gram fans. You may recall, or you may not, but I'll tell you anyway. I did a talk last year about the art of interviewing and how I approach it for a company that asked me to come and deliver the talk. Um, had no idea how that was going to go, but listener of the podcast and now my friend Christian Germain asked me to do it um, because he thought it would go down well with his company and it did seem to go down really well. And um, as I'll explain in a bit, I'm going to be doing more of that in the future. But anyway, part of that, you know, I basically explained how I approach stuff like this. And this this episode was a perfect case in point, really, because when you think about it, you know, Sean Thompson has been interviewed thousands of times over his career. I mean, he's been asked every single question under the sun. I'm always full of admiration when people in Sean's position have actually got the patience to still do interviews, really. I mean, I've only ever done about 10 as the subject and I'm already running out of things to talk about. So what I always try and do in these situations is it can be overwhelming with the research. You know, you're looking at it and you're like, fucking hell, you know, there's just so much of it. You know, you do a you do a, a Google search for Sean Thompson interview and there's literally there's just pages and so many videos, so many things he's talked about, like I say, thousands of times. So what I always try and do is go over this old stuff and try and discern not even specific questions, just like a line of questioning that hasn't really been that explored and kind of base the interview on that. And then I usually tell the the interviewee that's what we're going to do. And in this case, um, I decided to focus on this idea of surfing as metaphor, the power of storytelling in Sean's life and the arc of his relationship with surfing. And I also thought if I started it with the old WB Yates reference, it might wrong foot him a little because... I'm pretty sure he was expecting this was going to be the usual chat about surfing and surf history. You know, if you listen to this regularly, you'll know that's not really what I do, even though we did cover it in the end. Um, so that's kind of how I approached it. I was also aware that Sean is a consummate interviewee in that he knows what's required and he's going to try and talk about what he wants to talk about because, you know, people in Sean's position, professional people, um, who are doing this is a bargain, you know, they're, they're giving me their time, but also they want to tell us, me and the audience, what they're selling is a bit harsh, but you know, what they want to talk about. My job in this case is, and I'd say you've got about 15 minutes maximum to do this, is to earn the trust of the interviewee. So they forget all about that and they just engage in a natural and emotional conversation. And when it happens, and I can always tell when it's starting to happen, there's a few things that that are a bit of a giveaway for me at this point it re it's a lovely and enjoyable moment it's the point that I can finally relax even though I'm still thinking on three planes like one's for you Matt Arnie um and you know you can't ever really relax because you try to steward this this whole conversation but it's a nice moment 
it happened in that episode. I hope it came across to you listening that that's what happened. Um, so yeah, I enjoyed it very much and I hope you did too. As usual, you can find full show notes over at my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com and you can head over to the aforementioned Instagram page at We Look Sideways to let me know what you thought of it. The other thing that I want to say about Sean is look at what happens when legends like this use their platform in a positive way. I mean, that's one of the things I found so tragic about the Mike Ranquit thing or, you know, the Terrier thing or when I see other pros and legends being all bitter. I mean, you could use that platform to inspire people, promote inclusivity, generally try and make our little corner of the world a better place. Um, you know, no matter what you think of Travis Rice with, and no matter what you think of natural selection, he is genuinely trying to do the old a rising tide lift all boats thing with it. And, you know, he didn't have to do it. He's doing it for the pure love of snowboarding and his vision for snowboarding, for example. So thanks, Sean. Thanks for the reminder about the important things in life and for being so open and trusting with your story, especially um, letting me ask you those very probing questions about Matthew and that whole episode. Um, very moving, I found that. And yeah, I hope I hope you all got something out of that. All right, that's it for this week. I'm off to Croyd. I'm going to see Tozer actually and a load of friends. We're going to go and hang out in Croyd for a week. I'm going to do a bit of work, hoping to tick off a couple more interviews with some friends that have been long on the list. Um, May's looking busy. I'm doing another one of these corporate gigs I mentioned, like I say, where I help a company with their purpose and all that stuff, using lessons I've learned through making the podcast in my career as a journalist, as a starting point. If you've enjoyed any of the blogs that I've written, um, it's like a day of that stuff. Um, you can find the blogs over at my Substack via the website again, www.wearelookingsideways.com. Click the tab mark newsletter, you'll get there. Um, you can read it if you want. You don't have to sign up. You can dip in. But um, if you like this, you'll probably enjoy the newsletter. Anyway, like I say, I did the first one of these corporate gigs last year with my friend Christian Germain and his company, What's a Marlow. And it was great. Turned out really well. Um, I keep meaning to work out how to do it as an online course, like the do lectures and all the rest of the side hustle culture warriors do. Um, but I'm a bit busy, so I've not got around to it yet. And to be honest, fuck knows if I ever will get around to it. Still haven't put the book on Amazon yet. Um, one for the freelance article, devotees there. Um, anyway, then in June, like I mentioned, I've got my first Looking Sideways Live happening in Hossegor in association with my pals at DB and Wasted Talent. Very excited about that. I had one of those moments the other day, though, where I did wake up in a slight panic at the sheer amount of work I'm going to have to do to get that off the ground. But I'm sure I'll be all right. It always is, right? That's it for this week. Um, I will be back soon. Nice one. Mm -hmm.